Heavenly Father, I thank you that you delivered me back here safely and that you cared for the needs of this class as you do always in my absence or in my presence. Thank you that we had a chance to learn things that were helpful, I pray. But, but Father, now that we're back and ready to study your word, these are the things that matter most to us. And so I pray that what we learn tonight as we go through chapters 22 and 23 would educate us not only about your standards of holiness and your expectations for how we live with our neighbors, how you expected Israel to live, but also, Father, may we see evidence of the attributes and character that make you who you are, your fairness, your, your um, sense of justice, Father, your desire for men to love one another, things that we know you have written us in other places, but let us see it demonstrated tonight in your text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, this section of Scripture from chapter 21 all the way through 23 represent the basic civil rights of Jewish society. In the first chapter we studied, we looked at basic laws of life and property. Today in 22 through 23, we continue to look at property rights for a time. Then we're going to move into issues of negligence, false testimony or justice, and then sundry other issues as they are brought up in the text. In fact, as you read through this list, I want you to consider at the point when Moses fled Israel that prior to that point, Israel lacked a comprehensive code like this. Think about what life must have been like amidst the congregation of Israel for all those years without this list. It's almost strange to imagine men wouldn't know these things. And though there was certainly societal law in general all around in different cultures, this document, the one we're reading, is by far the most complete ancient record of civil law in existence today. And since it's God's law, it should be no surprise to us that our modern laws find their root in this law. If you look through it with me, as you look through it with me today, you'll see so many things that read exactly as laws we currently have on our books read today. Although I think it is fair to say that we've departed in many ways from these principles and continue to do so. And then as we have departed, we continue to diminish the value of these laws and their effectiveness in in doing good things for society. But nonetheless, the foundation you can still recognize. Let's go to chapter 22. We'll read verses 1 through 4 to begin. If a man steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owes nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Well, this section deals with crimes of theft. Now, in the way it's been written here, it's written for the times in which it was delivered. So it says ox, sheep, donkey, and the like. You can substitute Honda, Ford, lawnmowers. The point is, of course, someone stealing or taking, depriving someone else of their property. So when someone does that, when someone steals something, the law says he's required to pay back in some greater amount than the amount of whatever it is he takes. So if the animal is gone by the time the man is caught, so in other words, you find the thief, but the animal that he took is long gone, then he owes four or in some cases five times what he took. So four oxen, five sheep, in other words. If he's caught with his goods still in his hands, he's caught red-handed, then the penalty is only doubled because the owner obviously is going to receive back their original property as well. If he can't afford those penalties, he's sold into slavery. 
Now, you remember, slavery was a type of indentured servitude under the law in this day. So the person was working in that capacity, essentially, to pay off their debt. So, again, we use the word in the scriptural sense here. It doesn't denote the same style of slavery we're accustomed to in our culture. We're talking about someone who had a debt they incurred of their own volition. That debt cannot be paid in any other way except by labor. So they are sold. They are sold so that the value of their labor is paid forward to the person for whom it is owed. And then they spend their time working off that debt that their sale incurred. But they won't spend more than seven years in slavery, as we've already determined. So in a way, it's like a seven year work release program. Think of it like parole for how we do things today. Is parole a form of slavery? Well, in a technical sense, you could make it so you could call it so it's involuntary because they committed a crime, but it's just because it's paying a penalty. It's repaying their debt to society, so to speak, in the way the scriptures refer to that, though, they call it being sold as opposed to being incarcerated. Think of it in similar terms. The point of these penalties, obviously, is to deter potential thieves from their crimes. If you stand to lose more than you gain by your activities, then that should influence your thinking, right? Concerning the value, the profitability of taking on such crimes. But if those penalties are going to be effective, then the law must make them significant enough to cause men to think twice before sinning. That's got to be the effect, obviously, or they don't work. Paul says it this way in Romans 13, 13, 1 through 4. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So Paul says governing authorities are to be respected because the Lord has invested government with the power to execute his wrath against that kind of sin, against crimes. In other words, crimes against society with the power to punish. He refers to the ultimate power, the power of the sword, the power to bring, if necessary, execution to bear against the criminal in the worst of cases. But in a sense, it's representative of an authority that covers a span of options. One is that certainly at one extreme, but they have lesser options. The point is God embedded or imbued government with those powers so that as they wield them, they give cause to men not to be evil or face the penalty. That power should instill fear in men. And if the power of the government to enforce law against criminals instills fear, then, Paul says, society is better off. He asks the question rhetorically, do you really want to have no fear of government? Imagine the society we'd all live in if that were true. And it's close to becoming true because... The price of crime has diminished in many places, maybe not in all places, but in many places. There was the recent case of the gentleman, if you want to call him that, in Norway who slaughtered all those children. He killed 60 or 70 kids, right? His sentencing in that country was 21 years in prison. I'm not sure what kind of disincentive there is now for serious crime when you can do that kind of thing and receive 21 years in prison. But if God is in control of all government rulers, that's why we're told to respect government as a representative of God. 
at least until it comes into conflict with God's own law, in which case then we refuse government's orders and we take the penalty that comes for it. But if government is to play that role effectively, it's got to exact a price for sin that inhibits such acts. And in this case, God says, the price is pretty steep. If you steal, you're going to lose far more than you tried to obtain. If you deny the man the chance to recover his property, then the price goes up even higher. In verse 2, the law says, if the thief is caught breaking into a house in the night and is caught in the act by the homeowner, by the person who lives there, and that person kills the thief in the course of defending his property, the owner who killed the thief will not be held accountable. He is guiltless for the death of that thief. A property owner may defend his property with lethal force when he catches the man in the act at night. If the sun rises and the thief is caught after the morning comes, then the property owner cannot commit vigilante justice. The man may not be killed. If he is, then the homeowner is guilty of a crime. The idea is this. The reason this night-day thing comes up, here's the idea. When one breaks into a house at night, they have a reasonable expectation of confronting the owner. People spend their nights in their home. They sleep in their homes. And so presumably, if you still take the effort to go into someone's home at night, then you have some reasonable expectation of confronting that owner. And so the presumption of law is you are going to cause harm to that individual if you had been discovered. So you were prepared to harm that person in the course of your thievery, or you would have chosen to come at a time when they were not at home. So killing in that scenario is considered a form of self-defense even before you know for a fact that they intended to harm you because their very presence in your home at night is presumptive guilt in that respect. Do you know that in the state of Texas we have exactly that same law on the books? It's called the day-night rule. Or it goes by the castle doctrine formally, but it has a day-night provision. If someone's on your property at night, you do not have to have any more information than that to use lethal force to protect yourself or your property. If that same person is on your home in the daytime, you cannot use lethal force to protect your property. You can to protect yourself. But they would have to attack you. You'd have to have a reasonable view that you were under attack. If they just run around your backyard, you can't shoot them in the day, but you can at night. I'm not advocating you do, but I'm saying that we still reflect God's law in that small detail, even in Texas law today. And that's not unique to Texas. That's just the castle doctrine. If someone enters a home, they can be killed and the homeowner will not be charged. Besides the homeowners who are reading the law in Israel's day, who else was reading these laws? Prospective thieves. <laughs> so they knew before they entered a home at night what the law provided for. Here again, a deterrent to that kind of crime. And likewise today. The next section addresses property crimes of negligence or malfeasance. Verses 5 through 15, we'll read the whole section. If a man lets a field or a vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says this is it, 
The case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt, is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it in as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. Well, in this section, you see the Lord's desire to emphasize a couple of principles. Responsibility, fairness, accountability. You can see that throughout the conversation. Men are called by these kinds of laws to uphold their responsibilities in protecting another man's property or in restoring something that by their negligence they caused to be a loss. These are basic principles we still follow today or should. So if you damage a neighbor's property through negligence, malfeasance, etc., then you make restitution. It's as simple as that. If I borrow a man's tools and it comes back in a non-working condition, what does my neighbor expect me to do? Most would expect, certainly, that I go get another tool to replace the one that I damaged or whatever. If you're not culpable, though, the animal was torn by wild animals, it disappeared, but it's not my fault, someone else took it, and those are actually true statements, then fairness dictates that you suffer no loss. In other words, it's no worse that it was stolen from you than if it had been stolen from the original homeowner to begin with. So these principles can best be summed up with a simple phrase. Most of you could probably come up with it on your own. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember when Jesus was asked which of the commandments was most important and he summed it up by saying that we would love our God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands are hung the entire law. Well, now you're getting a better understanding, I hope, of why he said it that way. We've already seen laws regarding how to treat God. We'll see more of those even now. But here you're seeing these large sections in which the law is demonstrating how we love other people in specific scenarios. But these are specific, right? How many of us have borrowed an ox lately? Much less damaged one while it happened to be in our position, right? So how do I take these kinds of specific laws written for a different age to a different culture and extrapolate to my own day how they might help me? Remember, we're not under these laws. They're not binding on us in that respect. But the principles that underscore them are transferred into the New Testament. Christ himself said, love your neighbors, love yourself. He incorporated these same principles in the New Testament law of Christ. So they're not gone for us. They just have to be retranslated, if you will, into our current day's circumstances. And I've already given a couple of simple examples that you can understand. Things like borrowing people's equipment, taking care of people's homes, watching their animals for them. I mean, things that we do naturally all the time. Now we have some guidance out of Scripture that says, what does love look like under the circumstances when things go wrong? Well, love is doing our best to make whole the person who was injured, inadvertently or otherwise, by our lack of accountability or responsibility to a situation. It doesn't require intent. Did you notice that? None of these laws said if you meant to hurt the animal or if you meant for something bad to happen. That's not the issue at all, right? If we're going to reflect Jesus' words as he reiterated in the New Testament or God's words here in the Old, then we have to take at heart the notion that we put ourselves in that person's place and seek for something for them that would be equivalent to what we in their situation would want for us. 
Once again, I want you to notice there are consequences for failing to do the right thing under the law. And we know today there are consequences in our nation's laws for damaging another person's property, etc. But what are the consequences for the New Testament believer, the Christian, who would violate these principles of loving the neighbor, of restoring their loss? What if we don't do it? In the law that God gave Moses, this law had its penalties built in. Go before judges, have restitution demanded, etc. But if I borrow my neighbor's tool and I bring it back broken, say, sorry, Bob, just failed on me. Don't know what happened. Your problem. What are our consequences? Well, we must have some because we're under a law, the law of Christ. Christians have consequences. In Hebrews, we're reminded that the father will discipline his children when we fail to exhibit righteousness. Hebrews 12:5, he says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the writer says that as children of God, we should have an expectation to receive his discipline at times. For example, at times when we fail at showing love to our neighbor. But if God does not follow through to discipline us, then he said it would be as if we were not truly his sons. He's drawing on this this age old truth of society that a stranger cannot discipline another person's child. If they were to try to do it, they'd probably be arrested for assault. And if they just tried to do it verbally, the child would ignore it. For they don't recognize the authority of that person, not as a parent anyway. So discipline is a corrective measure that's inherently reserved for a parental child relationship. So he says, if you call yourself a son of God or sons referring to men and women, of course, children are reborn by the spirit into the family of God, then you're also implicitly agreeing with the concept that God now has a responsibility and an opportunity to discipline us as he sees fit to bring us into conformance with righteousness. And the writer goes further to say that if believers are determined to disobey the Lord, then the penalties under the law of Christ are significant. So going to chapter 10 of Hebrews, he says this, 1026. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So willful sinning has a remedy in the New Testament 
Just as failure to show love to neighbors, failure to live up to your responsibilities had penalties under the Old Testament. But in the new, we have no temple sacrifices anymore. So there's no way for us to appear before God, make sacrifice and appease his wrath, even on that temporary basis, which the law made available to the believer in Israel. Instead, we remain exposed to his discipline. And if the law, it says, handed out a penalty of physical death for the one who violated the lesser law of Moses, then he asks, what should we in the body of Christ expect to suffer if we insult the spirit of grace who has written the law of Christ on our hearts? The writer offers only one thought. The Lord will judge his people. And it's a terrifying thing to face that judgment, he says. Now, that judgment is not a matter of salvation. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have concerns about it. It still has consequences, and you have to be concerned with that outcome. And when we look at these laws, there's so many of them. All of them really have a parallel in some form to our life today. So the fact that we are not under this law, strictly speaking, says very little, really, about our obligations to it. We have many obligations to follow these principles because they reflect again in the New Testament law of Christ. And they are all an embodiment of loving our neighbor. So... Beyond the 613 we have here, there is an infinite number of ways in which our neighbors may come to depend on us or appeal to us or ask us to take some responsibility or aid them in some way. And if we fail in any of those respects to treat them with the proper diligence, then we owe them something to restore them, whatever that is. And if we fail at that account, what we're doing is we're testing the Lord's patience and daring him to discipline us as children who are not obedient. And we don't have the option to walk into the temple on one day every week or one week every month, bring a lamb or two, sacrifice them, and then think, okay, well, I got out from under that week's discipline of the Lord. The writer says, you don't get that anymore now. Now he expects obedience apart from that. Looking forward in the log, there's more examples. Exodus 22:16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. So now the laws are beginning to become more general. They're moving out of the property context, but they'll, they'll sort of jump around to different aspects of society. We're talking now here less about crimes toward an individual and more crimes toward society. And you may think, well, this sounds like a crime against an individual, but not really. In this case, the crime was against a family and a family name and... In general, it cuts to the core of society when you start to diminish the value and the sanctity of marriage. So a daughter who has seduced or has been seduced, she now has been defiled and therefore is no longer considered fit for marriage. So in a sense, her father has lost the ability to obtain a dowry for her. She's damaged goods in the culture. And so he could not expect to receive for her what he would have received for her before she lost her virginity. So he is due a dowry from the man who stole that honor from that woman. And the man must do the right thing beyond that. He must marry her. Yet the man must still have the father's permission for that. And if the father absolutely refuses, which I think is an interesting phrase in the Hebrew because it suggests that he shouldn't refuse, but... If he absolutely won't do it, maybe he knows better and this is not the man, then that man still owes the dowry anyway, because whatever comes next for that woman won't bring to the father what he would have expected. That law, by the way, makes abundantly clear 
that God's expectation is that men and women save their purity for marriage. And if that purity is given away before marriage vows are spoken, then the next best thing is to marry that partner. In the culture of the day, the woman is considered the victim to the man. And that's not an unreasonable assumption given the authority and the power men had in that culture, not just in obvious ways like strength, but he could have made accusations against her. He could have brought charges against her. She has very little standing in the culture, so she's very much considered the victim. We have a similar representation in our laws today with respect to children. So a woman under the age of consent is considered to have been raped regardless of whether she gave consent or not. And it's in the same mindset that says we protect people against themselves to a point. In that culture, women were protected like this indefinitely until they were married. But the point is, she has lost her standing of honor by virtue of how she has been taken by this man outside of marriage. Moving forward, 22.18. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. So now this small grouping here is with regard to practices of the occult or of the demonic world. And these particular practices are dealt with in a very severe way. The first is practicing black magic or sorcery, which is essentially a channeling of the enemy's power. And as a result, it demands death. Secondly, unnatural sexual behavior with the animal kingdom is an offense to the sanctity of procreation and God's purposes through it, and it is abhorrent. But in addition to that, some pagan peoples of this age practiced bestiality in their worship of false gods. So here again, the connection between all of these is the occult or demonic pagan worship is central to all of these. Then lastly, sacrificing anything to false gods. Well, by definition, that's worshiping the God of this world and therefore Satan, and it must be ended. In that particular case, verse 20, the law provides for a penalty even more severe than death. The word for destroyed in Hebrew is literally to be banned. And so it became known as the ban. The penalty was called the ban. And it means that the person was untouchable and must be destroyed utterly. There was nothing left of them. And fire was usually the preferred method. We see that same judgment, the ban, applied to the city of Jericho. Not only were the people to be put to death, but all the animals, and then the whole city was to be leveled and destroyed. It was not to exist anymore as a city. Except one of the men of Israel disobeyed the ban. In Joshua 7, verse 1, you read this, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So the ban judgment was a judgment that commanded that there be nothing left, everything be destroyed. We should have nothing to do with idols. This is tracing to the same basic principle Paul talks about when he says, what do we have in common with the unbelieving world, or with Beale. There is nothing in common. Light and darkness can find no common ground. And so, if there was someone in the camp of Israel practicing such things, particularly idol worship of another god, that needed to be wiped out, not just penalized. These practices in general, the three we just read, they were often associated with some of the worst periods in Israel's history. And I think, therefore, they are barometers of the heart of the people in Israel, and perhaps of any culture. When depravity of this nature is accepted in the culture, it reflects the strength of the enemy's hold 
on that people group and the extent to which the people have therefore abandoned the Lord. Therefore, the death penalty is appropriate. And as a restraint, it is effective in minimizing the enemy's influence in that culture because we're wiping out that influence. We're not simply disciplining that influence. Verse 21, another section. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So these ordinances address the needs of the vulnerable and the defenseless in society. You can see the themes. A stranger here refers to an immigrant, someone who's wandering through the land of Israel, a non-Jew, in other words. They have to receive some respect, the kind of respect that's due all men, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile. And the Lord reminds Israel, you were wanderers in someone else's land. You know what it's like to be oppressed. Don't repeat that sin upon someone else. Don't do what was done to you to someone else. Widows and orphans must not be oppressed. And in this context, it means you can't take advantage of them. Those groups are defenseless in almost every society, and they particularly were in Jewish society. So the Lord defends them. He promises to be their defender, and he promises that he'll take the lives of anyone who oppresses that group so that their wives, their children, will be the orphans and the widows as well. That law reveals an important principle of Scripture concerning your relationship with the Lord. Though you may not be a widow or you may not be an orphan necessarily, God is our defender, according to Scripture, and he will bring justice in his timing and according to his purposes. But notice, even in this text, he doesn't promise to prevent oppression of widows or orphans directly, does he? There's going to be oppression, presumably, such that he then has to respond, but the response is to go deal with the people who caused the oppression. They are going to, therefore, have experiences of injustice from time to time. There's no promise in Scripture that because he has a gracious disposition toward the weak and the vulnerable, like orphans, like widows, that's no promise that widows and orphans will have trouble-free lives. When the injustice takes place, however, he will respond according to his timing and in his manner. Romans 12:17 is probably the most quoted area of the New Testament that covers this point. Paul says in 12:17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So Paul taught, from this same biblical principle, the one that I think is in view as we're reading in chapter 22 of Exodus, which is we don't work to repay evil for evil in an attempt to defend ourselves against injustice that comes our way. Breaking peace with other men, even if it is to exact retribution against someone who harms us, is an evil thing in God's sight. As so far as it depends on us, do not be the one to break peace with another man. And in so doing, you leave room for the vengeance of God. 
what leave room implies is that if we remain innocent in one of these situations, then God will bring judgment in his way, in his timing. There's no promise you'll see it. There's no promise you'll be able to gloat over it. But you can be assured that when all the debits and credits of life are added up at the great white throne judgment or otherwise, all of this will even out according to God's justice. But leave room also suggests that if we break the peace, we remove the opportunity for God to step in because we circumvent the justice of God. Now, this is not saying we limit his power, none at all. What we're saying is that he would no longer be just to act in your defense if you've already taken that matter into your own hands and committed an injustice of your own. Now he has two guilty parties on his hands. Acting on your behalf would be taking sides of one guilty over another. That's what it means to leave room. It means to leave the imbalance so that when he acts later, he can do the right thing by you. That's why doing the right thing is keeping coals on their head. It's keeping the imbalance for the day when God deals with them. Now, for the Christian who says, well, where is there the opportunity to turn the other cheek and show love? He is telling you to do that very thing and leave the question of what justice will come in his hands. Whatever that may be. Perhaps this individual for whom we are currently heaping coals on is tomorrow's new convert to Christianity. At which point those coals will have been heaped on Christ's head and all is set straight for him as it was for us. The point is we don't know what God's plan is for that individual. We just know that we're not going to contribute to the plan by performing an evil act of our own. That does no good to anybody's plan and it violates the commandments of Scripture. Now, having said all that, none of this precludes self-defense, defense of other innocents. Again, we don't want to run to the extreme thinking on any of these points and say to ourselves, well, because I don't want to take up vengeance of my own, then if somebody is doing something to harm me, I'm supposed to just let them do what they will. Well, that's not necessarily wrong. That's an option you have, and the option is there if you feel God leading you to take it, and some in history have done so. We call them martyrs. But... If there is not that leading and you have an opportunity to escape like Paul did in a basket over the wall, you take it. They're both legitimate. They both depend, though, on the leading of the Spirit. What is never legitimate is to take up arms in vengeance against somebody else. You initiate the attack, in other words. You start the trouble. That is breaking the peace. That's never an option. Then in verse 25, Israel's commanded not to charge interest to one another. Never has a more ironic statement been made concerning Jews. And that is not an anti-Semitic statement whatsoever. They have long had a history of success in banking, both in the history of Israel and today. It's a testimony to God's blessing to that people of their industriousness and of their sophistication with money and their knowledge of such matters. And they demonstrate it every day. It's not the only area in which they excel, but it is one. But what's ironic is the law set up the expectation that they would not benefit or profit from another's misfortune within the nation. And that's implicit here. When someone comes needing to borrow, they've come short of their own resources out of some misfortune. And they are now vulnerable to you or others and are handicapped by that vulnerability. So they're in a time of need. Interest is a way of taking advantage of someone's need. Interest could be charged against Gentiles, though, and they've made a good living at that. Jews found a way around this letter of the law, though, in other ways, like overcharging for goods that were bought on credit. So the interest rate was zero, but the price was double. You see that example in Luke 16 when you see the parable of the unrighteous manager. 
I won't go into the whole parable, but you know how he tries to get out from under the trouble he's in. He goes to all the creditors and says, cut your bill by half. What he's doing is he's saying, take the interest off the bill. And as the manager, he was the one who would have received that interest. So he knows he's about to get fired. So he figures, I'll just take my part of all of these bills that are due, mark them down at zero to make the guy happy. And then when I get fired, when I leave my employer's business, I can go to some of these other people. They'll be my friends. But I didn't actually hurt my employer because he wasn't going to get that extra anyway. That was my payment. And since I'm about to lose my job, that money's of no worth to me anyway. It's about to be lost. So he did the smart thing. Jesus praises him, right? He made use of wealth that was not his own, meaning wealth that was about to be sacrificed when he lost his job. He was never going to see that wealth. Might as well turn it into something. He turned it into a, a benefit by removing the debt from the person's account. But that's an example of how they didn't charge usury interest, which they were prohibited from charging, but they found a way around the law Anyway, the point is, the hard attitude is the key in every law. Don't take advantage of another person's need. They violated the heart of the law by finding a way around the letter of the law, and that was very typical for Pharisees or scribes as well. Likewise, if a man gives up his outer garment as a pledge, and that's what this is referring to, of giving up of your outer garment as a pledge of repayment to someone else, then that man had to be shown mercy as well, because this garment that the law is referring to would have been the main Garment men wore, the outer cloak they wore, which gave them protection from the elements during the day, and it was their bedding at night, basically, and it gave them warmth at night. If they made a pledge during the day, and they did it by giving you their cloak, you had to bring the cloak back by night. They had to have use of their cloak at night, because that was their way of getting through a night with warmth. If you withheld it from them at night, then they were in a vulnerable position, which could then force them into accepting unreasonable terms just to get their coat back. So it was a pledge you had to return at night. The point here is that any unfair advantage that could leave one man enslaved, so to speak, to another was to be avoided. And God had just freed Israel from slavery and he didn't want the nation to re-enslave itself, one man to another, over these kinds of vulnerabilities. That's one of the reasons why being in debt is compared to slavery in Scripture. Because in a sense it is. So God promises to punish those who take advantage of Jews in this way. Moving on, finally, there's injustice against higher stations of Jewish society. That's dealt with next in verses 28 through 31. He says, you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. In verse 28, God demands respect for both himself and for the rulers he places over Israel. We could probably feel at least a bit of conviction over verse 28. We probably aren't guilty of the first half in most cases. I don't know how many of us can stand the test of the second, though. This law has a direct parallel in the New Testament law of Christ. So before you start to think this is limited to the Jewish people, 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So the command to respect and obey leaders is not conditional on their worthiness to receive such respect. 
The Lord demands it irrespective of their personal behavior because all human rulers reach their positions of power according to the Lord's will and by his hand. He places all rulers into power and they serve according to his purpose. Sometimes good rulers enter power. Sometimes evil rulers will reign. And God is working his plan through all of them. And so if we resist a leader, we are resisting God's will. As Paul said in Romans, we already read this, 13.2. Therefore, whoever resists, Romans 13.2, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Said another way, anyone who resists government has broken the laws of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Finally, the Lord reminds Israel to keep the commandment of the first fruits, both of sons and of animals, and to avoid eating meat torn by a beast. We've covered some of that in the past, so I'll move on. Let's look at chapter 23. Now, this gets more and more into the sundry laws, various aspects of society. They're not necessarily grouped in clean and clear ways in all cases, but they all work together to represent doing right by our neighbor. Verse 1 through 9. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet the enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of, just, of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. So in this theme is this section of preserving justice. First, act in accordance with truth and fairness. In repeating the first commandments, the Lord reminds Israel not to bear false report or perjure oneself. Then he says, don't enter into a conspiracy with other men. Moreover, don't follow the masses when they desire to do evil. We don't determine the right path based on its popularity. In fact, for the most part, if the whole world's doing it, it's probably wrong. And when judging disputes between men, don't give an unfair advantage to a poor man simply because he is poor. I find us in our society today making that mistake increasingly. And not just on the issue of poverty, but disadvantaged people are presumed to have greater cause in cases of justice. God says, guard yourself against such things. Pure justice is pure justice. Going forward, lost animals are to be returned. Animals in distress are to be relieved of their stress. If you needed to find the laws that talk to how we treat animals in the animal kingdom, here's where you would go. And in the spirit of justice, the Lord layers additional regulation on Israel in verses 4 and 5. He says, these acts of kindness and mercy for the sake of justice, you must do these things, even if doing so means coming to the aid of someone who hates you, someone who is your enemy. So you cannot use as an excuse for not being merciful the fact that someone has made themselves your enemy. And then in verses 7 through 9, the Lord, again, commands man not to pervert justice by promoting injustice or by oppression or taking a life. Verses 10 through 12. 
You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. So these verses were a command to give the land rest every seventh year. Now that command is explained more fully if you were to go to Leviticus and it's repeated in Deuteronomy and its basic purpose, practically speaking, was good husbandry of the field. Crops grow better when the land's given a chance to rest now and again because the depleted nutrients in the soil can be restored that way. Crop rotation is still a practice today, although it's not quite as common because fertilizers help make up some of that effect, I guess. In this case, though, the real purpose, the main purpose, extends beyond the practical and goes to the spiritual. Resting on the seventh year is tied in this verse, these verses, to the resting on the seventh day. That's why this resting of the land is called a Sabbath. Let's talk first about what happened in Israel when we had this one year every seven years in which they didn't put crops in the ground. How did they get food in that seventh year? Well, as with the manna, the Lord would make a double provision available in the sixth year. So the harvest out of the sixth year, every sixth year, was double what they normally had. And that gave them enough food to hold them over through the seventh year without farming. What a great deal. Wouldn't you like to get paid double in every sixth year of work so that you could quit work for a year? Now, I'm not saying they didn't work in some other ways, but they didn't have to farm. That's a great deal. At a point in Israel's history, however, the Jews decided to disobey this law and farm continuously through all seven years. They enjoyed the benefit of the double portion on the sixth year, plus they took for themselves the normal harvest they could get out of a seventh year. So their actions were one of greed. They got eight years worth of harvest out of seven years of work by ignoring the Sabbath requirement in the law. The practice of skipping that seventh year went on for 490 years in Israel. So in Jeremiah, the Lord comes along after 490 years of them disobeying this law, and he declares that they owe him and the land 70 of those years. After 490 years of skipping a seventh year, They owed 70 years of Sabbaths in which the land needed to be unfarmed for 70 years. So this is what he told them in Jeremiah 25, 9. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So that's what he said he would do. You hear it actually happening in Second Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. So this is in the time of Jeremiah again. Verse 13. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. 
Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people who were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of all the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. Who do you think that is? Jeremiah and others. Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So back to basic principles of worship and religious observance. Verse 13 of Exodus 23. Now, concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Three times a year, you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also, you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also, the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. So this section on worship opens with the third warning against idol worship. And it continues to a discussion of three mandatory festivals that all Jewish men must observe. So the rule was all adult males in Israel over the age of 20 had to go to Jerusalem. Earlier it was Shiloh and then it became Jerusalem under David. They had to physically travel to that location to observe these three festivals every year. The first was the Passover and the week of unleavened bread in which the Passover day was contained or was part of. When you come, he says, you must come with a sacrifice that is not empty handed. So you had to have a sacrifice on that one. And if you remember in the way he prescribed it, if you were too poor, you combined together with other families so that you could always have a sacrifice. The second feast was the feast that goes by three different names traditionally. Pentecost, First Fruits, or Weeks. Feast of Weeks. That was the feast that accompanied the end of the spring harvest. So you had Passover, then the spring harvest, and then the third is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Feast of the Fall Harvest. Those three feasts were mandatory in person for every adult male. Now, why were these three festivals mandated? Above all the other ones. The answer is because of the unique symbolism they each play in God's prophetic plan. Remember, the Feast of Israel, all of them are prophetic shadows of coming events in God's plan through Christ. So the spring feasts all are pictures of elements of Christ's first coming. The fall feasts are all pictures of elements of Christ's second coming. So the feasts of Israel are these shadows. The Passover 
and the week of unleavened bread picture in respective order Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the sanctification of a believer that's made possible by that sacrifice. The first feast is picturing Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the way that sacrifice brings sanctification for men. Secondly, the Feast of Pentecost. Well, that's a shadow of the coming of the Spirit to God's people and the writing of the law on their hearts, which is the promise of the new covenant. First to Jews in the church, but ultimately to the Jewish nation after the time of the Gentiles is complete. Thirdly, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is a shadow of the arrival of Christ at his second coming to open the kingdom, to inaugurate the kingdom. And if you want further evidence of that, of that picture, you may remember that at the transfiguration of Jesus, when he appears to two of the apostles, they see him standing with Moses and Elijah, remember? And he's seen in such a way that he appears to be transfigured to the state or to the form he will have in his second coming, in his arrival as king, glorified, in other words. They recognize that, the the apostles do, and see that symbol or see that change as meaningful enough that it prompts them to consider that now, in that very moment, the kingdom of Christ was about to be set up on earth. So what do they then offer to do in response to the thought that the kingdom has arrived? Build booths. Set up booths, because they remember that from Zechariah, they're told that the first event to open the inauguration of the kingdom will be the Feast of Booths, which is a picture of that moment in the meantime. So they got the right idea, wrong date. (laughs) The animals that are used in the sacrifice must be handled in a certain way. In particular, you cannot combine the animal sacrifices of any feast with leavened bread, because leaven is a picture of sin. So for obvious reasons, God doesn't want us performing religious worship that mixes sacrifice for sin with a symbol for sin. Retaining sin, in other words, while we're in the midst of sacrificing for it. So don't bring leavened bread to the sacrifice. As you look at how all of these laws are building pictures of Christ, the Passover, the leavened bread, and so on, and you see his care and his concern to maintain in the life of Israel concern for those pictures. Don't ruin the pictures, Israel. Don't get them wrong. Don't distort them. Keep them pure. Doesn't encourage you to see God working so diligently to preserve those pictures of his son. It's so clear that the Lord wanted Israel to become a living symbol of those things to the world so that by their very lives, they were a living, breathing billboard to the world concerning God's plan of redemption through Christ. If you knew how to interpret the signs and the symbols embedded within Israel, you could tell the entire gospel story by these commandments. Jesus himself did that very thing on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24:25, speaking to two men who didn't recognize him, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He's talking about these laws. The fat of the animals is used up entirely. Nothing is withheld. And then thirdly, the Lord receives the first fruits, the best of the harvest. This tells you that the sacrifice was total, just as Christ's sacrifice was total. He gave up everything and God gave up the best that he had, his only begotten son. The first fruits being pictured in Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection. Finally, that last law, that intriguing law about goats boiled in the mother's milk. That law is important and it's repeated three times over the course of the law. The reason for its importance is that it was a common practice in Canaanite culture to do this very thing. 
young goat was killed, and because it was young, the mother was still milking, so they could gain the milk from the mother, boil the calf in his mother's milk, and that was a part of their worship practices. So the Lord forbids it because he knew the Israelites were going to be living around Canaanites. He didn't want them engaging in any Canaanite religious behaviors, so he particularly forbid them from doing this thing because it would have been a sign that they were entering into Canaanite worship behavior. The rabbis, though, of Israel, they took this law way too far, which is their practice in general. They set up numerous related restrictions on Israel to the point of absurdity, all stacked on top of this one law. As a result of these pharisaical rules, for example, observant Jews, even to this day, do not mix meat and dairy products. We're not talking about the goat from the same mother. We're talking about doesn't matter where it came from. I don't put meat and dairy together, whether it's goat or anything else, whether it came from two different sides of the world. Cheeseburgers are forbidden under Orthodox rules. And Orthodox homes will maintain two sets of dishes, two sets of pots and pans, often two different refrigerators. One set's used for meat. One set's used for dairy. The two never mix. If you ever mix them accidentally, the dish is buried and never used again. That shows the absurdity of men who run away with God's law absent a correct spiritual understanding of its purpose, right? The original purpose was what? To protect Israel against Canaanite worship. That's its original purpose. It has since become this unnecessary set of restrictive laws that heap burdens on top of pious Jews. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 23, too. He said, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, Therefore, all they tell you to do, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things, and they do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our strength and our ability to persevere and hear from you through your word and learn things that we know are going to give us opportunity to serve you better. I do pray that we will have that heart to take what you have written to see it in its spiritual purpose, to live according to its intent in our hearts and not to make it legalistic. I do pray, Father, we would find new ways to love our neighbors and to, to make good and, and to restore what we may have taken, what we may not have given back in proper measure. Let us live up to these things so that in the way we show love, we show you, and in that way they may come to know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.